0: You're listening to episode 5 of season 13 of the GNU World Order for 2019.028. That is the 28th day of the year 2019. Recall, dear listener, that I have abandoned a monthly calendar, and I've switched to simply counting days. It's a much smarter method. I encourage you to adopt it post-haste. In this episode, we're going to talk about ZFS, because that's all we ever talk about anymore. That is what GNU World Order is all about. It's just about ZFS. And also we'll be talking about Slackware packages, because that is what we're actually doing, and, and that's been a thing. We've been talking about Slackware packages for the past year now, and uh, admittedly I got off track, but this year I've been doing pretty good. I've been trying to cover a, a package or two here and there, and I think it's a good thing for us all to, to look into our systems and see what is actually installed. Not because I distrust the people who are installing software for me when I in put a install disk into my computer, but certainly it's it's fascinating to know what's there and to find out what we're missing. So that's what we're we'll looking at in this episode. Let's get started first with some listener feedback, which inevitably is about ZFS. So. Got a couple of listener feedbacks. One is, this is why we can't have nice things from Vulcan Writer. First, the announcement that all of OpenZFS will use the Z, uh, ZFS on Linux, that's ZOL, code base, And then, less than a month later, we see this. And this is a link to a Linux kernel mailing list post, uh, or a, a post to the Linux kernel mailing list, about how there have been some key modules in the kernel that have become restricted, declaring that they are unavailable to anything that is not compliant with the GPL. And there, as you can imagine, there's a lot of lot of discussion about this, not the least of which from the ZFS on Linux developers themselves, saying that this basically breaks ZFS on Linux. That's a little bit disheartening because I mean, as you know, just the past this this past episode, I I finally installed ZFS on Linux, and I was quite excited about it. And apparently now it is not going to work anymore. Well, I mean, it'll work as long as I keep Slackware 14.2 installed and this kernel version installed and so on. But in the future, I guess the Zf- ZFS on Linux is at least as it stands right now that is the twenty eighth day of twenty nineteen, dead. It is dead in the water. It cannot it cannot continue as is. Now there are a couple of different workarounds here. One is well, okay, so one is that the ZFS on Linux developers themselves could uh for lack of a better term, and this is my own this is only my understanding, I've I'm not a kernel developer, and I could be wrong about this, but they could re implement essentially the things that they don't have access to, and the things that they don't have access to under this, this sort of GPL restriction, is the FPU and the SIMD instructions, which I think might be needed by ZFS for, um, for for performance purposes. So they could just write that themselves, from what I understand. Uh, it would be more work, and so on and so forth. It would probably redundant as well, so I don't know how smart that is. And, and for all I know, as I say, I'm not a kernel developer. It might not even be as effective. Who knows? So that would be one workaround. There is possibly another workaround, which I'll get into in a moment. First, I'm going to just kind of briefly mention an email from a guy named Tim. And Tim says, yes, there are benefits of ZFS, even on one disk. You can change the copies priority of data sets from the default of of 1 to 2 or 3, and ZFS stores multiple copies of the data on the same disk. While it does slow writes, you're writing 2 to 3 times the amount of data to the drive, it does ensure that even if some sort of damage happens to one of the copies, the checksum catches it and ZFS just swaps out the, the good one for the bad one. Now that would not suit for me. Performance uh, I'm not crazy on performance, but it, when I do need performance, I want performance. So d- taking a hit for for that, probably I would probably think twice about that. But he also says, it has the ability to automatically compress blocks of data going to the disk, so it saves a lot of drive space, especially for my mail and logs, which I no longer bother having log-rotate-like tools compress because ZFS does it for me snapshots are free basically free and blindingly fast um done similar to how git makes a branch just writing a little metadata about the point in time you don't have to wait for fsck or journal replays if the system abruptly loses power that's kind of cool can match the block size to the dataset, so the data set backing my postgres sql database can have the same record, si- re- record size pg uses 8 uh K blocks so having the file system also use 8K blocks saves a lot of read and write effort no longer have to worry about partitions being sized too large or small because you can just resize them offline or or rather you can resize them online you you don't have to wait to resize them till they're offline uh, can send or receive snapshots of datasets faster than with rsync some deduplication cloned dataset features uh, that are nice if you have jails or containers or VM disk images where you have one base template image and then a bunch of um, sort of snapshots on top of that or whatever. And so he says I use ZFS on all my FreeBSD machines, haven't explored using it on Linux yet and find it totally worth it even on my laptops with only one drive. And now my FreeBSD machines outnumber Linux based machines, it's rough when I have to go back to non-ZFS systems. So yeah, I mean that's it's definitely cool when you find something where what where you miss it when you don't have it, that's definitely that makes an impact and I can identify with that definitely. Um, but uh, as I said, it looks like maybe ZFS on Linux isn't going to work out so great after all. Now, let's get back to that point, because it's it's an important one. It's something that we should we should address. A lot of people are quite upset about this because uh, it does seem rather arbitrary for the kernel maintainers, uh, or really, kernel maintainer, the person who has commented on this is Greg Koa Hartman, and, and so people are kind of looking to him as... The person who has decided, well, if you're not gonna play nice with the GPL, then the GPL then then the kernel isn't going to play nice with you. And now I'm not, again, I'm not a kernel maintainer, I'm not a kernel developer. I haven't contributed code to the kernel ever at all. And and so it's difficult to kind of put myself in the shoes of the people writing this code. And it is very easy to see licensing in general as something that that's primarily theoretical, is something that exists in the books and not really something that affects real life, until someone wants to spoil everyone's fun, at which point they, they pull out this big wet blanket called the GPL, or whatever license you have a problem with, and, and, and casts a gray pallor over everyone, and makes everyone go home sad. It's, it that's kind of how it feels half the time, because that's that's when we talk about licensing, right? And, and I've said before in the past that one of my main problems with, for instance, a BSD-style license, or an MIT license even, is that very frequently that kind of license is, I mean, really too permissive, which you might think, well, that's ridiculous. I thought you... We're after free software licenses, right? We're trying to to lift restrictions. And while I do believe that that's true, I also believe that uh, companies nowadays in the, in the modern world have have honed their ability quite nicely uh, to to adopt things that people are making for the good of other people and then themselves hoard that asset, for their own gain. And I have a problem with that. I really do. I've got a problem with companies doing that, and I have a problem with the systems in place to protect companies when they go to do that. So I have an issue with with large sets of code being licensed in such a way that allows companies to take advantage of the code and of people. Do I... Do I like the BSD and the MIT and the Z- Zlib and other other uh, Apache licenses? Do I like those sometimes? Yes, I do. Because it makes it super, super easy when you need uh, a big chunk of code. So yeah, I, kinda, I guess I kind of want the cake and I want to eat it too in that regard. But generally I think that major coding projects benefit from licenses that protect the people who are sinking a lot of time and effort into creating them, protecting those people from, from basically corporate, you know, soft corporate takeovers, which we've we've seen happen before. We've seen projects get quote-unquote adopted by a company and then sort of taken over by a company because the company just has so much resource or influence that they're able to, to backseat drive. And I'm not okay with that. And I'm definitely not okay with the fact that there are lots of systems in place in in major sort of economic countries that protect the companies that do that. And 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 really the the legislation tends to favor the company rather than the person being taken advantage of. And a lot of times the 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 impression this the general impression given is that the company is right, and that this one person who's making a big stink about their stupid little code project having been sucked up by this one big company is just being, just being obstinate and, and needs to, to stay in their place and go away so that the company can do whatever it wants. Because companies, as we all know, are perfect. They make jobs, right? They, they create wealth, so how could they possibly do anything wrong, ever? And that's kind of where licensing sits in a lot of our minds. It's it's this troublesome, kind of ugly part of of social reality that that we really don't want to get in our way when we sit down at our computer inside of the four walls of our own house, which I completely, completely am on board with. I, I feel much the same way. I think the problem here is that the kernel developers and the ZFS people are are actually they are duty-bound, both to themselves and to past contributors, and to the people that use their software, not, not, not you and me necessarily, but, but people who are developing on top of their software, to actually manage this license stuff. And it turns out that the GPL and the CDDL are not compatible, and as much as it might be really, really nice for people to just kind of turn a blind eye and say, well we'll just leave these flags off of this code because what we don't know can't hurt us it's not going to be a problem we'll just we'll just let the zfs thing continue without any kind of acknowledgement of the fact that this that there's a that there's a legal issue underneath it all and i think that the the the, the impulse i think for a lot of us is that come on nobody's going to break into your company and say, "Oh my gosh, you're using this code on top of that code, and now we can sue you and you're going to you're going to be ruined." It's just not going to happen, right? So we could just we could probably turn a blind eye to it and just not enforce the licensing and it would be fine. But we live in a world where that doesn't that's we just don't have the luxury to do that. There are these legal systems in place. Computers are a very hot topic. They are the center of much analysis. and I think if i was if I was dealing with a, a serious software project, something that ran some huge percentage of all servers and lots of embedded things, and just you know I mean, if it was everywhere like the Linux kernel is i I can imagine wanting to be legally compliant in in the code that I'm distributing to to get some clarity on this whole subject I decided to finally look up exactly what was going on with the GPL versus the CDDL license because I I never really understood it I never understood how to Verifiably open source licenses could be incompatible, and and the only place that I knew to look for this was the SF Conservancy, the S- uh, Software Freedom Conservancy, who um, run by Bradley Kuhn, Kuhn and uh, Karen Sandler, and I, I, I saw them actually recently at a technical conference, which was kind of neat, and and it kind of it it actually brought their site to mind because I thought oh I should i know i know that there's a blog post about this topic and i should look it up so that's exactly what i did and and I, I can't read it all obviously because it's um it would be boring but there there's there's some small moments of clarity in all this legal speak that i'm going to kind of address so and 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 if nothing else it, it may help you understand the the conflict it, it certainly helped me understand the conflict so uh, I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes, but but essentially we get to a point where Bradley, the the guy writing the blog post, the author of this post, says that in order to look at two licenses for compatibility, you have to look point by point at their requirements, at the at the, the things that they themselves say in order to use this license, you must you know those these things that you, you look at both of the lists and if one of the lists on the left side if one of the licenses you know on the left side for instance has a list of, of four points and the, the list on the right side of another license has three points if 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 you go down those lists and and you can satisfy them all then they're compatible but if you go down those lists and you are unable to satisfy all of their requirements, then they are incompatible. You cannot combine those two licenses. It, it, it'll be a point. It, it'll be a. You'll reach this point where, you know, in order to satisfy item A of 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 license foo, you must contradict item B of license bar. And you you that 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 means you cannot then use one of those licenses you you either have to violate the license on the left or you have to violate the license license on the right so specifically we have some things in the GPL version 2 that say for instance section 2b says you must cause any work that you distribute that in whole or in part contain or is derived from the program or any other or any part thereof to be licensed as a whole under the terms of this license Section 3 says, you may copy and distribute the program or a work based on it under Section 2 in object code or executable form under the term of uh, of Section 1 and 2 above, provided that you also, Section 3A, accompany it with the complete corresponding machine-readable source code, which must be distributed under the terms of Section 1 and 2 above. You may not impose any further restrictions on the recipient's exercise of the rights granted herein. Okay, so those are are salient points from the GPL. And here are some salient points from the CDDL, version 1, section 3.1. Any covered software that you distribute or otherwise make available in executable form must also be made available in source code form, and that source code form must be distributed only under the terms of this license. So did you, you the the emphasis there was mine but it says must be distributed only under the terms of this license that this license being the CDDL now it says only under the CDDL so there's a conflict right there right because you can't release something under the GPL and also have it only under the terms of the CDDL you may not offer or impose any terms on any covered software in soft in source code form that alters or restricts the applicable version of this license so you've got a little bit of a conflict there there are some things that you cannot you, you cannot change you, you cannot satisfy both the requirements of the gpl version 2 and the cddl version 1 now there's some speculation in the post. I don't know if it's if it has any grounds at all, but but he is supposing that Sun, Microsystems, the the, the company that came up with ZFS and then released it under the CDDL version 1 along with uh, the open Solaris stuff. but he he speculates that they didn't want code from Gnu and Linux in Solaris, and more importantly, probably, Sun did not want technological advantages from Solaris's kernel to end up in Linux. So, in other words, he's supposing that the, that Sun did not want ZFX, ZFS to end up as a Linux technology, which um, they've they've done pretty well uh, to prevent that, as as it turns out, that it it has been successful, um, more so now than than ever, I guess. So, this is um, this is the the problem as it stands, but it's worth noticing it's worth noting that that the clauses that we read earlier are were referring largely to executable or object code and and so on so pure distribution this is again bradley Pure distribution of source with no binaries is undeniably different. When distributing source code and no binaries, requirements in those sections of GPL version 2 and CDDL version 1 that cover modification and or binary or executable, as CDDL version 1 calls it, distribution do not activate. Therefore, the analysis is simpler, and we can find no specific clause in either license that prohibits source-only redistribution of Linux and ZFX, even on the same distribution media. So, in other words, there's absolutely no conflict as far as at least the Software Freedom Conservancy can understand, and of course they are just speculating here, all of this is just legal gray area until someone you know takes it to court and bad things happen but but as far as they are concerned they can't find anything wrong with moving forward with ZFS on Linux uh, not the project but the the concept as long as the as long as the code itself is distributed in in source rather than binary now i could be wrong but that sounds like it would still be an applicable loophole here because as long as you yourself are compiling the thing then none of the clauses, none of the requirements, activate, as the SF Conservancy called it. It, it, They don't activate because you're not redistributing this thing. You are compiling it for your own use at home. You can put whatever flag you want onto it, and it should be able to interface with whatever kernel module you need it to interface with. At least that's my reading. And as I've said many times before, I don't know anything about law, don't even like thinking about it, so I don't know. So, I don't know where we are now. I guess we're at a point where we can say the the licensing thing is is a is is a bother. It, it would be nicer if it if it went away. And as Greg Kroa Hartman points out, that is something that is within the power of of Oracle. They could definitely r- release this code under something other than CDDL. And 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 saying that. The kernel development should just learn, but should just turn a a legal blind eye and just kind of let it continue. I don't know. I think that's. I still think that that's a dangerous. And you can you can debate this point with me. I'm happy to hear an opposing an opposing uh, idea here. But I feel like that's a dangerous thing to ask a major project to do. To just say, well, you know what, just 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 let it happen. Privately. Nobody's going to talk about it. It'll just happen. And we don't have to acknowledge that it's happening. We'll just say that we didn't realize that people were doing this, and it'll all be fine. I just, I, I honestly, I feel like that's opening yourself up for, at worst, litigation, and, and at best, doubt like legal doubt sort of like oh i don't know if we should be using this kernel because you know they they've been known to play pretty fast and loose with uh licensing terms and yeah we we better use something else i just i can't see anyone any other kernel or any other serious software project acting that way and i i don't i don't i wouldn't expect the linux kernel to to act that way either really i mean i would love it if it was possible but i just i don't see how that would be Realistically, in this kind of in in this in this world where litigation is so prevalent and computing is under such a spotlight, I just I don't see why they would just pretend that they didn't know that these modules are being used contrary to not just one but two licenses, one of which belongs to Oracle, which is famously antagonistic towards a lot of what Linux does. Okay, that really took it out of me, so I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. You should do the same. We'll talk about software, something a lot more fun than talking about software licenses, I promise. (laughs) got coffee i do i have a really really good cup of coffee i i spent a little bit extra again this week and got some uh some fancier coffee some better coffee than i've been getting which is nice uh so we're gonna talk about some slackware packages here because as i've said before a lot of us don't know all those little programs in usr bin i mean you you do an ls on usr bin and, and USR, uh, s bin and you get all kinds of results and half of us, like if you if you showed me half of what's installed on my computer, I'd probably say, I don't know what that is. Well, I've sought to change that with this series on in, in which I review each and every software application installed after a Slackware install. We are in the A package set, which a little bit more on that later, uh, and and we're up to sdparm. sdparm is a utility for listing and potentially changing. SCSI disk parameters. More generally, it can be used on any device that uses a SCSI command set. This is a pretty low-level command or high-level command. I always forget which way we're supposed to tilt things. And and it's it, I don't know a whole lot of uses for it, actually. I kind of looked around online for some examples, and all of the examples that I came up with were from four years ago to do things that are basically defaults now. So it's not not super useful, but I'm going to Talk about it anyway. So uh, if you do a man sdparm, and this may not be installed. This this wasn't installed, for instance, on my Fedora laptop, my work laptop. So it's probably not something that everyone else ships with. But Slackware tries to be kind of everything in the kitchen sink, so it, it ships with this. And and to be fair, I could see myself adding this to my to my um, do not install tag list. So the sd Parm man pages uh, reviews a couple of a couple of different uses and starting just up up at the top really is uh, just let's look at all parameters. So if we do sdparm and then dash dash all and then a path to a hard drive, so dev sda for instance, then it gives me all kinds of feedback about what is activated and what is not activated on this drive. And we could even, I guess, maybe, what if we just did a grep1? grep, grep one? That would show us everything that's turned on. And so I know that AWRE is activated, WCE, which is the write-back cache, is activated, GLTSD is activated, and then BT, BTP is a negative one. I, I don't exactly know what a negative one represents in a Boolean system of zeros and ones. But it's definitely no because it says that um, the character that it gives me is a, a lowercase in. So those are those are the um, those are some of the and I guess really it's not boolean because here's a thirty estct is a thirty and again its character is in, and the whatever is thirty so I don't know interesting so if we do um, we can also do we can we can get specific attributes so if for instance you know that you want to probe something to see if let's just go with write-back-cache, because that's the one that I know, vaguely know. So we'll just do a sdparm-get, dash dash and then equals, and then the abbreviation for that attribute that I want to get the, the value for. So dash-get dash equals WCE, all capitals, oops, and I forgot the path, dev SDA, and it says yes, absolutely, that is turned on. So if I do, for instance, let's do an sdb, everything's going to be on, I, I, I just kind of... Yeah, all of my drives sdd, have the write back cache turned on. That's just I think that's pretty much the default nowadays. Um, but there you go. That's that's getting attributes of a drive. I'm trying to think if there was any other cool trick trick in the the man page. I don't think so. So really, this is a, a sort of a an analytical tool and possibly a, a setting tool as well. And I know that I did find online somewhere someone was using SDparm to activate, I think it was, write-back cache. And I don't know why that person's drive wouldn't have that activated already, but but apparently they were doing it to, to activate that at boot time. So that's that's it. That's, that's SD Parm. Like I say, it's probably going to be something that I get rid of, eventually. Well, actually, I'm going to do it right now. Remove PKG SDE parm There, that's done. But um, I- even further, I'll probably add it to my do not install list, because I don't think I'm using it. I don't think I need it. So I'm going to get rid of it. We'll see what happens. Okay, so that's SDE parm The next one is sed. And this is this is what made me realize actually that I've I've I have actually regressed in my in my discussion of all the Slackware packages and n- none of you told me so apparently none of us kept track of what I was talking about before I've I've covered I've covered I've covered RPM to TGZ I've covered SDparm I've covered sed and shar utils and I think that's it. I think I, I was actually up to char Util, U, utils, char utils, uh, and that char, char utils was the cool. It was a shell archive thing, which would play back like a shell. You could sort of package up this sort of sh- thing in a shell and and then play it back. It was very very cool. I haven't used it since, but it was very cool. But yeah, I mean the reason that all of this came back to me was because I realized oh said I I didn't do said and I said I'm gonna um I'm gonna wait to do said another week so that people can send me said commands as tips and and then I forgot I mean I, people sent me stuff and I, I still forgot so that's kind of silly of me and I would have loved not to have backtracked but we did we, we backtracked a little bit and that's fine so what we're gonna do now is we're gonna skip over the stuff that I've actually already talked about and we're gonna go straight to split VT which I'll be honest, it kind of feels familiar too, but I, I can't find anything in my show notes that, that indicate that I've talked about split VT, which I mean could just mean that I'm not very good at taking show notes. So split VT is a command to split your terminal in half, much like a GNU Screen or, I think, Tmux or just whatever terminal emulator you use. And I feel like more often than not, people are just going to use their terminal emulators to split their their the their the the window of their terminals in half, but it is kind of nice to know that there's a, a program called split vt that will do it in a pinch if you need it if you're in some weird terminal that doesn't have uh, a whole lot of features then maybe this is something that you would want to use. Now it is a very it's a it's a basic split. So for instance, if you if you do if you enter split vt which is split vt then it splits it in horizontal half. And you can use Control W to switch between the upper and the lower pane, and they both work independent of one another. So that's that's nice. It's a good little feature there that seems to to work. But if you, for instance, if I have my my terminal size a certain a certain window size, and then I oops, and then I increase it, then the the sort of the the alignment gets Thrown off until you do a clear on either screen. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it's just it does feel a little bit like, oh, okay, this is this is an old style split. This isn't this isn't really you know this is it took a, a photo of of the world as it exists right now and then and it split it based on that. Um, but it, it's got a couple of different modes, so you can Control W to go between the upper and the lower. Parts, but you can also do a, a Control O to issue some kind of some kind of separate command. And there are a couple of different commands that you can issue to split VT in its command mode. One being, uh, for instance, shrinking the current uh, half of your window or expanding it. You can use um, the a C to uh, select a block of text, P to paste a selected text somewhere, so you can kind of copy and paste between the two, you can kill a, a window, you can lock the screen with X, the, the letter X, you can repaint the screen, so sort of a reset with the letter R, and you can quit entirely with, with Q. So in other words, to get out of split VT, the, the way that, you know, the the, the correct way would be Control O and then Q, and now you're out. It puts you at the bottom of your terminal window, and you're you're no longer in a split screen. So that's split VT. Is it essential? Probably not. There's a lot of other tools out there now that do that very thing. But now you know that it exists. Next up is SysTool Sys, or well, no, not not SysTool. Sorry, SysFS utils. And sysfsutils includes sys-tool. In fact, it includes very specifically sysfs tools It includes dlist underscore test, git device, git driver, git module, and sys-tool. Which all kind of actually sound related. I I wonder if uh, git device, git driver, and git module are related to sys-tool. Sys-tool I've used a long time ago once, and it was to check if a specific driver was running. And that was uh, by issuing this command: `systool -capital D for driver, and then dash ca- uh, -lowercase b for bus, USB, and then pipe that to less. If you do that, it tells you, yeah, this is the bus USB. Here's everything that 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 is classified as a USB bus driver hub devices using hub R, and then it enumerates a bunch of different devices driver uh, sound -USB -audio. That's actually what I'm speaking on right now. And it illuminates a bunch of, uh, uh, enumerates a bunch of stuff. And then there's USB storage. And then finally, way down here at the bottom, driver, XPad. That is my gaming uh, control pad here uh, that is plugged into USB just because it's on my desk and I never unplugged it. And it says, device using XPadR, device 4-5, colon 1.0. So that's, that, I used it once to see if the XPad driver was loaded or not. That was a long time ago. Well, I mean, a long time ago, being like two or three years, maybe, but that's that's sort of what I know about systool, or at least that is the use case that I had for systool at once at one point, and and what it really does, if you just type in systool, it and maybe pipe that to less. Actually, now that I now that I do it, you'll see that it it shows uh, supported sysfs buses, and it shows you a bunch of different buses, and it shows you different classes. There's block devices. There's CPU ID. HW mon lots of different ones and then finally there are the devices supported sysfs devices not finally sorry and then finally there are the modules and that was kind of interesting to kind of play around with too if you've if you're sort of i, I mean it's not probably not a whole lot that you can't learn otherwise from uh list mod anyway but it was kind of interesting to see what what modules i had available to me uh that that maybe I was maybe I wasn't using something that maybe I could I could maybe optimize in my kernel actually and and that's really it so sys tool seems to be a, a sort of a probing a tool it is something that that happens uh, when you need information let's let's type in get device for a minute and it looks like get device you can issue a bus location or a device location and get information on that as well and I'm assuming that the same goes for get driver and get module. So if we do a get module and then ps mouse, let's just type that in. Let's see what that tells us. Yeah, it tells us a lot. Core size, it tells us the core size, the init size, the init state, the u event, the parameters, the sections. Lots of information on that. That is super informative, actually. Um, not that I need any of that information, but but there you go. Get module xpad, and there's there's more information on that one. D pad to buttons, no. Sticks to null, no. Triggers to buttons, no. Init state live, init size 0, core size 16559. Five, yeah, this is pretty interesting stuff actually. But yeah, very much a, a probing kind of tool, and certainly not any information that I need right now. But now you know that exists. Sysfs utils. Now here's the sysklogd, and sysklogd is a modified version of syslogd for the linux environment an additional utility klogd is included which allows kernel logging to be directed through the syslogd facility so as you can imagine this is probably i mean if you've got this installed and you may not because if you're running something with systemd they I, i imagine they don't probably bother with this uh but if you've got this running or if you've got this installed rather it is probably something that runs in the background, and you you may not have ever even been aware that you were telling it to run. I think on one of my systems, I actually don't run this very specifically. I, I think it's on my laptop because my laptop, the entire drive, the the only drive that it has in it. Well, not the only drive, but the the the, the drive that that runs Linux on it. The other one is um, OpenSolaris, and it's it's the drive that was installed in the laptop. It's a standard drive, but the one that I added into it on a like an expansion bay type thing is an sdd drive, so I figured, you know what, I'm not going to run syslog on this because that way I'm just reducing the amount of writes. So syslog is is quite simply the thing that logs events related to your system on Linux. Systemd does a lot of that now on other distributions, so it's not something that you necessarily are running. However, it's important, I, I think, often to understand that, that you can run it like just because your distribution doesn't come with syslogd, you could run that as well if you wanted to. Um, I, I met someone years ago now who 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 I, I felt was pretty knowledgeable in Linux, um, and I don't mean that, that he that he is not, but I mean at the time I, it kind of surprised me that he was asking this question. And the question was um, how, like, because I had suggested, hey, why don't you what what cron do you run? Because it was a cron-related question, and he said, "What do you mean? What cron do I? You know, like what? Wh- what do you mean? What cron do I run? Like, I, I don't know. Cron." And he didn't realize that there were different crons. There's anacron and dylan cron and lots of different cron applications that, that get installed on on a different distribution. You know, one may have this one, one might have that one. It's just up to the distribution person who decided, oh, "I'll use this cron." Same thing with, with logging. It's just there's the, You don't necessarily have to stick with whatever your distribution cobbler happened to put together into the disk that they give you. You, you can swap it out. You can use something different. Okay, so here's uh, the next one. is SysLinux, S-Y-S-Linux. It's a bootloader for the Linux operating system, which operates off of an MS-DOS slash Windows FAT file system. This is used by the Slackware Make Boot Disk Script to create system boot floppies. So SysLinux is kind of a, an alternative, I guess, to, to Grub and Lilo, which, I mean, I say alternative because I think it is actually used uh, in, in some of the, the bootable, like the, the, the emergency boot stick, I think. Although that might be Lilo, I haven't looked lately. But the uh, SysLinux system, you could you could use by installing, for instance, Slackware and then not in installing a bootloader at all. So you install, you go through the whole process. You just don't install a bootloader, and then when you're done, you switch over to your to your system to the the, the thing that you've just installed. You enter your your local Slackware install, and you do a chroot and stuff like that. So you you make this your active environment, and then you can create an EXT Linux directory in in your slash boot folder, and then issue a command EXT Linux dash dash install slash boot slash EXT Linux. And then you cat from the user share syslinux gptmbr.bin into slash dev slash sda. So you're you're taking this little executable thing and putting it at the very front of your hard drive. And then if you want a menu, then you can copy the sample menu over to your boot ext Linux directory, and then type in a, a little menu for yourself, which um which is it's going to be pretty similar in in Really, form and function to Lilo. Things like uh, label, you know, Linux, menu label, Slackware, kernel, slash, boot, slash, VM, Linux, dash, huge, dash, whatever version it is. And then append root equals slash dev slash SDA1, RO, and that's it. You're good to go. Now you can reboot, and instead of booting into Lilo or Grub, you boot into a syslinux, or you, you, your, your bootloader is syslinux. I don't know how easy that is to up, update and kind of maintain. I know that Lilo for me is pretty simple. You change the the, the menu or whatever, and then you run Lilo, and, and then you're done. Uh, Grub, I've had an interesting relationship with. Uh, SysLinux, I just, I've just i never actually had to maintain it, so I, I don't know what goes into maintaining that and making sure that it knows where to find stuff. But that's that's SysLinux. There's a couple of different packages in the SysLinux or a couple of different software applications in the SysLinux uh, package as installed by Slackware. But it is an active and uh, usable thing. It's something that you could actually use, which is weird for me to be saying that, but I guess in, in comparison to the other ones that I've I've talked about on this episode so far, um, and, and even this one, barely. But here's something that, that I actually use on a daily basis, and I, I honestly didn't even realize this is what I was using. So there are a couple of packages, three packages it looks like, of sysvinit. Uh, related applications and I I knew that sysv init w- was a thing that slackware had compatibility with and I never really thought of slackware as, as actually using sysv init and and most people say well slackware uses its own init style it's sort of a bsd style blah 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 so actually it is sysv init like if you look at you know if you were to if you were to probe your system enough to figure out what that first process is, it would be init, and then if you look at where init comes from on your system, you would realize that it comes from sysv init. So Slackware is using the init process from sysv init, the sysv init project, which, again, that's not what normally people say Slackware uses. Most people say, well, Slackware doesn't use sysv init, it uses its own style of init. And and it does use its own style of init, but but that doesn't change the fact that, technically speaking, it's sysv init. And I didn't realize that, I really didn't. I never never sort of really realized that it was sysv init, but it is. It is exactly that package. And so I've talked about init systems before, uh, during Season 10. I did a, I feel, what was a pretty darn good episode about changing your init system and i used um a system called ninit n i n i t it's a deprecated dead project now so it's probably not something that you would want to use today but it's worth looking at or or other init systems are worth looking at because it is it's it's a lot of fun to kind of figure out how exactly your computer gets from not being on to being a computer that's really quite fascinating study now i wouldn't Swap out my init system on my main machine. I wouldn't do it on something that I cared about necessarily, but it's it's well worth trying, at least in a VM uh, or or on a spare computer. But swap it out for something. Swap it out for Ninit or Minit or OpenRC. I think there's one called Minit. Um, uh, OpenRC or, or some some other init system because it is it's a fascinating process to go through to figure out Okay, so I know that init is going to launch, and then it's going to want to find some things to launch. So I need to have these scripts in place, and and what are these scripts capable of? Are they capable of restarting if they fail, or do they just fail silently, or, or what happens when they fail? You know, and it's, it's this whole process that you kind of get to discover as you as you rebuild the init system of your computer. It, it's worth it's worth trying. For sure, uh, and Slackware, of course, uses SysV init in it in in ways that other people don't necessarily use it. And uh, my process is generally I look in slash Etsy slash rc d for the scripts there, and there are rc dot various scripts, rc.alsa, rc dot rc dot ssh probably, I don't actually see that, there it is, ssd, rc.syslog, that's not executable, and um, rc.udev, all these little startup scripts, and I I look at them and decide if I want them to actually start up, and if I want them to start every single time, I do a chmod, as root, I do a chmod plus x slash etsy slash x, slash etsy, slash rc dot d, slash rc dot, and then whatever it is that I want to activate, like maybe cups, I don't know. So I I might do that. Now if it's something that I don't want to start all the time, but for whatever reason I need it right now, then I'll do an sh, and then slash etsy, slash rc dot d, rc dot whatever, for instance, let's say cups, maybe I, I need to print something all of a sudden, and I realize, well, I don't normally start cups because I never print, but today I need to print. So I'll, I'll, I'll do an sh to, to launch that script without actually marking it executable. So I'm running it directly, just allowing the shell to, to, to process it. So I'll hit that, and then CUPS is now running, so now I can print or whatever I needed to do. And then when I'm finished, I'll do a sh slash etsy slash rc.d slash rc.cups, and then probably I'm imagining it's it wants to stop yeah, it wants stop to to stop the process from running. So start to st- to start the process, stop to stop it, and usually there's a status flag as well. That's kind of how I manage my my init stuff on Slackware. That's pretty typical, I think. And and I guess I mean there is there's there are other things that you could do. There are other ways. Sysvinit certainly has has some notations. I think rc dot k or rc dot s something like that. So you could you could do that, and there is, in the rc.d directory, there is an init.d directory where you can put, I guess, um, functions, sysv init functions. So init.d, fr- from the readme in init.d, it says, if you're reading this in slash etsy slash init.d, Slackware's real init directory is etsy rc.d. Maybe you already knew this, but it never hurts to say. This script was taken from Fedora and is presumably licensed under the GPL. While I don't see Slackware init scripts making much use of it, but use it if you wish. Some third-party init scripts, such as commercial software designed to run on Red Hat, expect this script and use it in their own init scripts, so it's a good idea to make it available here. So in other words, the traditional looking init.d stuff from, you know, traditional sysv init stuff is really included for compatibility or or rather the the structure of it is com- included for compatibility the init binary itself literally called init that's included to be the init of slackware it just so happens that what it expects to see on slackware differs from what it might ex- what it would expect to see on debian or red hat or whatever so there you go that's that's the story of the init system on slackware Maybe I should revisit the whole swapping out the init thing sometime. Maybe I should try OpenRC. I've never actually tried it, so maybe I should try setting that up and, and going over that somewhere. Because I like I say, I think it's it's one of the most elucidating things that you can do on your computer. It's just it really breaks it wide open once you understand how that how it gets from nothing to being an amazing computer. That's really, really informative and helps you understand kind of the low levels of your system. And that's it. We're through the S's now. So the next next time we talk about Slack or packaging, we will start with tar. That's a good one. The tar command. So thanks for listening. I will talk to you next time. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's clatu@member.fsf, at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, GNU World Order.info and SlackerMedia.info. I will see you next time. hundreds of wonderful vegetables.